One of the things that is really important to remember about containerization is that it is uh, it was envisioned as a complete system from its very beginning. Um, from the moment of its invention, um, one of the early assessors, an, e an economist named R.T. Crate, one of its early assessors said, the container will change our relationship between the ship and the factory and the dock. Rather than seeing those as separate units, the ship, factory, and dock will be sutured into a single operation. And what this means is that the container is not just a box, it's an entire system. And in order to invest in it, many countries would then have to put in millions and millions of dollars into containerizing and modernizing ports that had up till then largely been brick bulk ports or ports that sort of dealt with um, ships in a kind of piecemeal manner that were largely driven by um, the, 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 the hard mass labor of longshoremen. And over time, this meant that, you know, the countries that were able to um, get either billions of dollars in loans or had the financial capacity to build these and modernize their ports were first able to tap into the containerized markets. And many of them that didn't sort of fell behind in the kind of world of global trade. Um, and so I think that the kind of system of totalization that the container kind of aspires towards is to make the entire world in this kind of packable image that allows um, goods to become traceable data that you can track and trace through computerized systems and that you can manage through logistical managerial software. Um, but it also required a massive geographical alteration of coastlines as we knew it. Um, islands have been blown up, reefs are constantly destroyed. In order to make berths deep enough for ships to go through um, what were formerly quite shallow ports, um, sand has to be dredged not once ever, but constantly in order to kind of stem the flowing of tides. Um, ships in order to move across water at certain depths and to change their depths often take up what is called ballast water in their tanks at one point of their journey and then release that ballast water in other parts of the world at different points of the journey. Often this means taking up, you know, um, plant and marine life that is common, let's say, in East Asia in much warmer tropical waters, and then bringing it to places like the port of Amsterdam, which have very, very different ecologies. And over time, this has shifted estuarine ecologies. It's brought invasive species across oceans, um, and it's led to the death of and the diversification for sure, but also the death of many different kinds of native plant and marine life. And so I think the 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 history of the container should not be understood just purely as a kind of innovation as many people would like to tell it as a kind of story of creative destruction but it really was a system for um destroying different kinds of life as well different different alternative imaginaries of, of the way that you know life could proceed In 1956, Malcolm McLean patented the shipping container, a stackable, packageable unit that allowed intermodular transportation of goods from trucks to trains to ships in an apparently frictionless supply chain. This brought with it megaships and the promise of efficiency. 
There are two main versions of the story of the shipping container's massive impact on global trade. The first, complete with winners and losers, revolves around the genius of an innovator and first move advantage, and presents supply chain capitalism as something of an inevitability. But Charmaine Chua, a Singaporean organizer, writer, and assistant professor of global studies at the University of California, argues for another version rooted in Marxist tradition. In the second narrative, the containerization of the world can be seen as a counter-revolution intended to bypass the Global South after the 1955 Bandung Conference gave rise to plans for post-colonial economic sovereignty. Shipping containers are a means to bring about frictionless accumulation of capital and satisfy a sociopathic demand for access in the words of Fred Moten and Stefano Harney, while breaking down any possible labor solidarity between workers and nation states and harming coastlines and the environment. Focusing on political economy, post-colonial development and technological change, Charmaine Chua's interdisciplinary research looks at logistical systems and how planetary networks of production and distribution shape the organization of racialized and class divisions. Her work has taken her from the decks of container vessels to the struggle within Amazon warehouses, bringing her close to crews, longshoremen, workers, and unions. In this podcast, Charmaine Chua shares her research on the containerization of global logistics from the vantage point of the global south. Her journey begins a broader container ship, embodying ethnographic observation and fieldwork as well as a radical re-reading of the naval archive records of the colonial project. The mix of methodologies, experiences and data highlights the incongruencies and the environmental, legal and labor abuses that appear in the capitalist wet dream of efficiency in global trade.
Yeah, so I grew up in Singapore, born and raised and left to the U.S. when I was 19. And part of uh, growing up as a Singaporean citizen, you're often narrated into the history of post-colonial um, life in, in the global south uh, as an exception. Singapore is the country that escaped uh, you know, histories of colonial dependency, and it did so in the, in the narrative as a, as a kind of special place that kind of harnessed its history as a maritime port and its ability to sort of take the colonial past of British imperialism and bring it into a kind of newly industrialized future. And I always thought that that history sat really oddly with my experience of the kind of place that Singapore is, which is that it is so entirely capitalist in how it imagines life, that everything from, you know, your uh, schooling experience to what you can imagine yourself doing afterwards is really captured by a kind of um, shrinking of the imagination into what is the most efficient, what is the most um, optimized for a kind of contribution to Singapore's economic future. And so I think that always was, um, I think it sat differently in my bones and I didn't have quite have the language for understanding what it meant and why I was so dissatisfied with a kind of um, capitalist imaginary there. And it's really only, I think, in coming to the US and then in gaining a language through post-colonial theory that I started to try to understand it intellectually. But I think that the biggest change um, was when I began to organize as a labor organizer in graduate school. Um, and I started to understand or begin to see the kind of connections between the intellectual work that we do as people who are critical of the world and critical about the structural violence that happens and the ways in which, you know, organizers on the ground are constantly engaged in ongoing struggle. And I think from, from my experience of doing labor organizing, both as a graduate student organizing for a union, but also then sort of continuing that work into um, police abolitionist work and more um, sort of militant strategies and, and trajectories that um, I started to want to put the two together. In other words, to kind of think about how this maritime world that is so often a kind of forgotten space and, and, and assumed to sort of not matter to the constitution of the world economy um, is actually a history that is sort of deeply underscored by histories of struggle that I think um, I've been trying to make visible by sort of um, reminding us by going through the archive that um, these histories that seem so inevitable, the containerization of the world, the, you know, the normalization of just-in-time delivery, that these things are actually sort of constantly um, experiencing not only frictions, but challenges from, um, from the kinds of people that actually make these supply chains what they are. So in 2014, I began my dissertation field work um, driven by a very vague impulse, to be honest, that uh, so much of the way that we talk about how capital accumulates is as if there is no space through which it flows. You know, it, the language is of financial flows, of the cloud, of instant transactions. And I begin to think about, well, what is it about capitalism that manages to tell this fiction of its success at a kind of frictionlessness? 
and um, began to look, I think, at the maritime space as one of the ways in which we can visualize and visibilize the slow violences that capitalism requires, the kinds of modes of, you know, travel across the ocean. So we know that, you know, as Karl Marx um, kind of has famously put it, that capitalism strives towards an annihilation of space by time, by which he means, right, that um, you know, capitalism can, in traveling across the world and picking different sites of production, um, it can sort of overcome the problems of long distances far away from each other through a kind of suturing um, uh, to, to kind of turn those into, you know, uh, supply chains that, that kind of snake across the earth. And so I really wanted to just follow what it meant to feel the sensation of, of floating with the slow movement of goods um, and that was the kind of beginning of the ethnographic experience. I really just bought a ticket, which is a very uncommon thing to do, but there are a couple of maritime uh, tour companies that allow you to purchase a ticket on a ship uh, for 100 euros a night. And I took a 26-day journey that eventually turned actually into 48 days because of longshoremen um, who were stalled at the ports. Uh, because they were kind of going through a contract negotiation and a slowdown, so it just took longer. But I ended up um, on that ship and wanted to, I think, be in conversation with the sailors in their place of work, but to also experience for myself what it meant to be on the ship working with them. And so I took up jobs. Um, the crew is usually divided into the deck crew and the engine crew. And so I took jobs on both sides of the the crew uh, every morning and, and try to experience the rhythms of the work. And one of the things that I, I guess I was able to only understand through the ethnographic experience is how embodied the sense of homesickness is when you kind of um, sell your life to being at sea for six to nine months at a time uh, while, you know, leaving your family behind. And the sailors constantly talked about this as a feeling of deep entrapment. They called the ship floating Alcatraz, as in reference to the famous prison off the coast of San Francisco. And that was such an illuminating moment for me because the kind of, the very object, you know, the ship that we think of as a kind of form of spatial mobility was for sailors who, who are the people who move our goods deeply experienced as a kind of entrapment. And so I think that was a moment of opening for me that sort of then made me want to experience kind of how the maritime then works, right? So uh, everything from kind of how they were washing down different kinds of components of the ship to collecting plastic particulates from the um, ocean water that moves through the ship to cleaning up oil um, in the bowels of the engine deck uh, to scrubbing rust off of, of the deck on, on the mornings. All of those for me were ways to understand this kind of the slowness of capitalism and the ways in which actually all of the images of fast flows require really a kind of um, a slow attention to the kind of effort to keep, you know, the infrastructures of capitalism moving. I think I started to then realize that ethnography could only get me so far and that it could allow me to grasp some of the textures of what these embodied feelings were like. But to, to really, I think, experience the, the, to the totality of capitalist systems and what is actually going on behind 
the scenes was harder to figure out. Um, and so I went to the archives, mostly in the UK, to try to piece together the history of how containerization happened in the 1960s. And the archive is a funny place because, you know, as a post-colonial subject, um, my ancestors are unnamed, right? And when I go into the archive, I don't have a name that I can look up that went on a ship to, to discover my history. But in the archive, you constantly experience a lot of British people coming in with the name of their ancestor, looking with the name of the ship they were on, trying to find and piece together some, you know, some version of the history of their family. And they always could find something or other. And the archive is a funny place because its logics that unfold are through names and through places and through companies. They're not through generalized categories. So I couldn't, for example, find pirate rebellions and then easily find that topic. I would need to know the name of the company that was pillaged. I would need to look between the lines a little bit. And so I started off, I think, by realizing that colonial violence really is kind of hidden in, in the ways that the logic of the archive itself um, tells its story. And it was only in kind of reading more and sifting more through um, really boring and mundane details that I figured out which were the companies in, in the UK that first um, containerized, how they sort of financially consolidated their wealth at this time of waning empire as Britain was struggling to figure out um, what it was like and what it would mean for them to withdraw from formal dominion. And a lot of what, you know, a lot of these British companies were essentially arguing was that they needed a, a form of protectionism to protect British trade, um, even as they were demanding a kind of access to the raw materials and producers of the global south. So that's, I think, where trying to think structurally about the grand histories of uh, logistics gave me some sense of where in the archive you could follow companies, the stories that they tell about themselves, uh, the narratives that they want to produce about the fall of empire. Uh, and that helped me understand, I think, what then came, became very central to the project, which is how to understand you know, empire, not as something that happened in the past, but as something that is deeply present and um, continues in informal ways that are harder to understand, in part because dominion doesn't figure itself as clearly as a kind of occupation of land um, as such, at least um, in, in the global south. Certainly occupation of land continues in much of the settler colonial north. Um, but that colonialism and empire sort of continue and persist through different forms of free trade agreements, through uh, the necessity for many countries of the global south to sell their labor and sell their produce on a global market and essentially that the capitalist you know social formation doesn't really allow alternatives to capitalism to breathe and survive and so that was kind of the way in which i kind of tried to put the history and ethnography together
So I think I tra- kept track of the conversations mostly through a tape recorder, a sound recorder, and um, I I used it somewhat as a kind of um, photographing experience. I'm not a professional photographer by any means, but I, um, you know, brought a camera on the ship and, and kind of documented daily life, followed them while they were recording temperatures on refrigerated containers, uh, took pictures while we were doing the work and um, as we were having conversations. It was quite tough because, you know, the conversations happen everywhere. So in the course of the day, as we are you know, scrubbing the deck, it's not really possible to pause and say, excuse me, wait, while I take took notes down on my notebook. So I would be talking to them and basically um, have a notebook where I record observations and quotes that I would remember at the end of every day and would take, you know, one to two hours at the end of the shipping experience to kind of um, take notes down in my room. I also took uh, quite a few kind of sound recordings of just the ambient noise, so the the hum of the engine, the throb of the 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 you know the the winds and and the kind of general sensation of being on board to kind of try to remember what it felt like and then I would also I was um, writing dispatches live that I was sending to a friend who was then publishing them on a um, blog that I was a part of at the time and so it kind of forced me to kind of take my impressions and put them into a narrative form that was ended up being really useful because I think I did some of the best writing I've ever done on the ship. And in a way, it was a useful reminder that when you are most grounded in uh, real experience is kind of when we are most inspired as intellectuals, I think. The ship had 22 men on it. I was the only woman. Of those 22 men, four were European and the rest were Filipino. And most of the Filipino were crew members, meaning that they were either ordinary sailors, ordinary seamen, or able-bodied seamen, the two ranks of crew. And most of the Europeans were um, trained and uh, held their contracts in Germany. One was Russian. And part of the reason for this, we can get into it later maybe, is is really about flags of convenience and the way that they structure the ship through two different kinds of labor contracts. But I think because the ship was, you know, for Europeans, myself and Filipinos, I found myself constantly having to toggle back and forth between different kinds of uh, identity positions as I was trying to talk to each of these um, kind of ethnic categories. So with the Germans... Uh, I identified with them in part through kind of uh, understanding myself in the global north. With the Filipinos, I found a way to kind of connect with them as a south as a fellow Southeast Asian person. And um, in both cases, it was interesting to play my racialized identity in this way because um, I found that it was somehow easy to convince the Europeans to confide in me about their impressions of the Filipinos. And often they would actually say some quite racialized things and had really racialized understandings of how um, the Filipino sailors acted. And at the same time, Filipinos also were, you know, felt able to confide in me as a fellow Southeast Asian person about, 
their impressions of the of the Europeans. So that was, I think, the racialized element of it was really interesting because then you can play class and race positions in in, in these interesting ways that that I think were not really instrumental. I wouldn't say that I was trying to fool anybody, but it was just about sort of finding ways for people to 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 understand relationality um, more clearly. In the in terms of gender, it was much harder. Uh, many of these men are extremely lonely and kept away from you know, their families and often their wives for months at a time. Some get used to it, but others, I think, um, find it really difficult. And I experienced sexual harassment on the ship, um, mostly from the one Russian chief, uh, second engineer, who, um, you know, made several kind of overtures that were quite sexual in nature. And because I was working with the engine crew, had a couple of awkward experiences in which he would pull me aside to... Um, to to suggest that I was playing with his feelings when I was certainly not and just trying to be a professional and an ethnographer. And and I think some of those blurred boundaries really started to reveal themselves. Um, And the Filipino sailors were actually, you know, incredibly kind and had my back in the the midst of this experience. And um, I felt very safe kind of, you know, uh, going to their room and and watching TV with a few of them and, and confiding in them. Uh, towards the end of the journey, because the the second engineer had become quite aggressive in his advances, I started to not feel safe anymore, just in my cabin, and I, I had to sort of go to the captain and then go to the the sailors to kind of ask for for some help and some safety and some protection. So it was helpful to know that there were people I could rely on. Um, but certainly, certainly, how these play out, you know, is is not. It's not neat and smooth the way that uh, one sort of understands one's identity on on the ship and and what it means to kind of think of oneself as as a woman doing this work. One of the things that I'm tracing in my book is trying to think about how it is that capitalism, which is a system that affects all of us and uh, in fact structures most of us into working relationships to the people who own the means of production, somehow still manages to produce anti-relationalities and conflicts even within the working class um, in ways that, you know, constantly find reasons for um, the the breaking up of potential solidarities. And I found this to be very true with the, with the Europeans and Filipinos, that even though they were both working class subjects, they are all employees of massive shipping companies. They don't own any of the means of production. As workers, they did not see themselves relating to each other, but often sort of rationalized their special capacity to work as having Um, unique characteristics that the other ethnic category didn't. So the Europeans would often say, you know, they would even say of the American longshoremen, ah, these black men are so lazy, they refuse to work. Or they would say of the Filipinos, you know, in language that was essentially racialized, that these Filipinos were docile, just knew how to follow orders, um, were only interested in doing the bare minimum and you know, knocking off work the next day. 
Whereas the Filipinos would often say, these Europeans are arrogant. They don't understand that we are doing the bare minimum because we don't wish to give our lives to this job. And so the conflicts constantly arose. And one of the things that I'm tracing is what is um, known to the International Maritime Organization as Flags of Convenience, um, which is a system that began um, way back in the 1920s, but really accelerated during the post-World War period, in which um, ships have long kind of always carried or had foreign flags, but this really accelerated as a way to evade primarily taxation and to sidestep labor costs um, in the post-war period, especially after um, World War II had kind of taken many, you know, typically maritime sailors off into the war, and many positions on ships had to be replaced by, often by foreign um, servicemen. So Chinese seamen were frequently employed in the British trade. And in fact, during Jim Crow law in America, um, black men and white men couldn't work together on the same vessels. And so they started to build maritime schools in the Philippines as a way to train Filipinos to work on these vessels with, um, with, sailors, uh, with sailors from the US. And so the flag of convenience really becomes what Rose George, the journalist, has called um, a floating piece of the nation state in which the ship you are on can have three or four or often five nationalities intersecting at the same time. So the ship that I was on was called, um, I'm not supposed to name the ship, but it was an evergreen ship, which is a company that's uh, owned in Taiwan. And I thought that that meant that the ship was owned by them, but that's not true. The ship was built in a Korean shipyard, but it was owned by NSB Reederei, which is a German company, a, a mid-sized shipping company. And they uh, both manage the human resources of the ship and then they charter it out. So Evergreen earns the contracts or, or the containers that it carries are Evergreen contract fulfillments. And that means that Evergreen gets to be painted on the side of the ship. And this German company, NSB, both hires the Europeans directly through a contracted German relationship and then subcontracts um, those the, the rest of it to a Filipino manning agency um, called Senator Crewing. At the time that I was on board, the ship was flagged to Germany. So that is actually quite rare these days that ships are flagged to the country in which they are managed. But NSB was sticking to that relationship and finding that its profits were increasingly squeezed. And so the year that I was on the ship, they had started to transition into uh, a flagging out to, I think it was Panama. And what this essentially meant is that the obligation for the German company to hire a portion of the crew as Germans um, contracted through, um, you know, uh, German labor law could be sidestepped and they could hire entirely non-German crew. Prior to this, Germans, because they were um, under German labor law, had very different contracts than the Filipinos. They worked three months on the ship and three months off the ship. Uh, with paid leave and their salaries were often 1.5 to two times as much as a Filipino of the similar rank. Filipinos, on the other hand, worked uh, contracts that were six to nine months long, um, were paid much less, even if they were, even if they rose to third or second mate, which is the kind of uh, in the category of a officer. And uh, most of them, when they are off the ship for three months, uh, are unable to attain pay, they work on a contract by contract basis, which means that when you're off the ship, 
you are, uh, you know, you are on unpaid leave. And in order to move up in the shipping world to kind of earn your way towards an officer position, you have to go to school and you have to take maritime certificates and constantly kind of skill up your, your skills. And when I was in Manila trying to get a feel for what Manila as a kind of seafaring town feels like, you know, you walk past scores and scores and scores of maritime schools and billboards advertising debt, basically maritime-based student loans. And so what happens is most Filipino seamen, if they want to earn a higher wage, have to subject themselves to quite predatory loans run by private companies in order to go to school in the three months that they're off while they're not paid, trying to spend time with family and still trying to kind of get ahead in the, in the shipping system. And so it's a deeply unequal, deeply segmented system, which um, I think early labor economists call the split labor pool or a segmented labor market. But one of the things that I think really struck me about this was that it wasn't just an economic relationship. The, the ways in which they saw each other weren't just econ economically understood. They were also racialized and they were deeply racialized along these kinds of national lines. And this became much more obvious uh, once the company had announced that they were flagging out to Panama because the Europeans started to face the potential loss of jobs. And it is in the context of them facing the loss of jobs that they started to talk about their labor as special. They would say, we know how to map this ship according to the stars and the direction of the currents and a compass. The Filipinos have never learned to do that. We have a special skill. Um, it's incredibly unlikely that a GPS system would ever turn off. They are satellites that are run in space. But it is this kind of like off chance scenario that the Europeans would often rely on to say, we have the true skills of a seaman while the Filipinos lack it. And meanwhile, the Filipinos constantly sort of relied on this language of their own racialization to defend what they understood as their own niche in the labor market. So they also feared that soon, because they earned a higher wage than Sri Lankans or Chinese seamen, that soon they would be passed over for an even cheaper labor pool. And so they often said things like, you know, I am a Filipino man. We are built like soldiers. We have an infinite capacity to work. And there was a way that they self-racialized and understood themselves through this kind of language of self-exploitation that I think became very interesting for me to think about because those are those mean that we have to think about these relationships as part of a political economy of racialization in addition to a political economy of global labor offshoring and arbitrage. Um, and so I suppose to, you know, what I've been trying to think about is the way that um, uh, the, the theorist and sociologist Jodi Melamed, um, she defines racial capitalism as a technology of anti-relationality. And I think what she means by that is that capitalism finds a way to uh, build and sever relations, right? Sever potential relations in which people might find each other and finds ways to legitimize, um, you know, subjects kind of understanding themselves in ways that close themselves off from solidarity. And I thought that was so illuminating because their Europeans and Filipinos should, in this moment of kind of the threat of labor passing by both of them, understand themselves to be in solidarity with each other, but instead they relied on race to, to kind of understand their difference. Um, and this is something that I think logistics has kind of helped to accelerate because it's allowed 
the geographical dispersal of labor contracts um, across this kind of maritime market. So the container is long celebrated as a world-changing invention and was invented in 1956 by a man named Malcolm McLean. He was a trucker who owned a, a, a trucking company that at, was the, at the time was relatively successful. It was in, based in Alabama. He owned, I think, a fleet of something like 60 trucks, so not, not a huge company. But he was the first to realize that by creating a container that could be easily transported from one surface to the other in what is now called intermodular transportation, you could then solve a problem that had long plagued the transportation economy by kind of making a, a singular box easily moving, uh, easily packable, stackable and shipped on, from truck to train to ship, so on and so forth. The problem that had persisted, he was not actually the first person to um, think of this idea. There was a long existing history prior to him of better boxing and, um, and containing goods to make them more easily packable. So everything from patents around giant rubber um, socks that could hold you know, um, gallons of oil to wooden barrels as a kind of standard, 
two different kinds of palletized boxes had been experimented with. But he was the first to realize that you could pick up a whole unit in its entirety through um, a kind of crane mechanism. And so McLean patented this with the help of his chief engineer, Keith Tatlinger, Tantlinger, um, and in 1956, they um, innovated a, a steel box that had a proprietary locking mechanism, which allowed you to use a kind of twist lock to um, both lock a container in place on top of the other, but it allowed you to also unlock them and, and allow them to be stackable at different times. Uh, they put these containers onto a ship called the Ideal X, which sailed from Houston to New York in 1956. And this became the first successful container vessel. And often the history of the container is told as if from this moment on, everybody knew that the container would be a world-saving technology and that they could sort of, um, you know, uh, proceed from there. But the history is actually a bit more uneven than that. Malcolm McLean was unable to get people to take this up, in part because the cost of it was so great. Um, and he only really succeeded by um, quite bravely uh, going to the Pentagon in the days when you could still enter the Pentagon without a security pass, sat outside the office of the chief quartermaster of the Vietnam War and um, told him that he could experiment with and solve the problem of the Vietnam War with the container. At the time, the Vietnam War was, uh, I think, in part challenged by the fact that moving goods to the port um, in a really swampy kind of marshland was proving to be really difficult. And so there were lots of ships just kind of sitting um, in southern Vietnam waiting to be unloaded uh, with rations and, and food and military material. And so McLean said, you know, in showing you how the container can work, I'm going to give you a proof of concept of solving your, your military logistical problem. And um, the quartermaster agreed, and that sort of began the contract and revealed, I think, how the container could work. And so, of course, this history should remind us that, you know, um, logistics beginnings are deeply inscribed into a history of imperialism and a history of the American anti-communist war in Vietnam. But I think it also then, um, what happened afterwards is that it then elicited a global recognition that containerization was a mass labor-saving device and a mass efficiency device. It was labor-saving because um, by you know using a crane to stack um, goods off it, on and off a truck uh, or off the ship and onto a truck, et cetera, et cetera, you could often reduce what took armies of longshoremen days and days and days to do um, in the stroke of a single kind of crane lifting operation. And it often reduced often hundreds of longshoremen crews to something like 15 workers per crew. And this was in the interest of companies, especially in the time when the International Longshore and Warehousing Union in the US um, was in increasingly militant and increasingly successful at kind of a you know, having a, a kind of increased bargaining power. The other thing that I think is worth mentioning is that, you know, longshoremen had to deal with the stuff of the world uh, kind of one by one, right? So they would haul a single banana bunch onto their shoulders or they would pick up a, a single, you know, um, bale of cowhide or a bale of hay um, and bring it onto, onto the docks. And what the container did is it kind of radically sterilize the smelly world of stuff into these 
boxes that could be packed and stacked. The logistics revolution is often told as a history of increased efficiency in kind of two modes. In the first mode, there's a kind of imagination of the genius of an innovator who was determined to create an object that then had a kind of massive impact on the world. And in this story, when you're trying to explain something like global inequality, it's often told as a story of um, first mover advantage. So there are winners and losers in the global economy, depending on who kind of moved into the containerized market first. There's a second more, uh, more critical anti-capitalist story of containerization, um, which comes out of a Marxist tradition that tries to grapple with how in the 1960s, as the container was coming onto the market, the world was grappling with uh, a falling rate of profit in which intensified economic competition between Germany, um, Japan and the US were accelerating the, the price competition between different kinds of goods. And this meant that the rates of profits of many producing and manufacturing uh, sites were starting to fall and experience a kind of precipitous decline. And in the work of Robert Brenner, who has become very influential in this kind of story of the falling rate of profit, this profitability crisis is known as the long downturn, from which Brenner theorizes there has not yet been an, a recovery. In this Marxist account, there is also, I think, a better understanding of the structural um, reasons for the, the growth of containerization. But I think what happens in both these accounts, the innovation account and the Marxist account, is that they leave out the story of what the role of the global south was uh, in either case. And so containerization often appears as this story that manifests capitalists' own fantasy of itself, right, as a technology that could take over the whole world. And so in my research, I really try to subject that to some questioning to ask, what does the history of containerization and the so-called logistics revolution look like if we view it not from the global north where these inventions were uh, produced, but from the vantage point of the global south. And what I think becomes clear is that in 1956, when Malcolm McLean invented the shipping container, a year before that, the Bandung Conference was a um, gathering of 59 newly decolonized Asian and African states who, sorry, not 59, 24 newly decolonized African and Asian states who began to gather to ask the question, what does self-determination look like in the aftermath of empire? And this for them meant that they had to constitute what was called the third world, not just as a place, but as a political project and a political project of imagining and building a form of international political and economic cooperation. And so the political theorist Adam Getachew has called this moment not just a, a moment where, as it's often thought of, as a kind of siloed project of just national self-determination projects, but as a project of what she says is world making, the world making of imagining a world after empire. So what happened at Bandung is th that as you know, these countries began to talk about a future after decolonization, their analysis was that colonialism had far from disappeared, but continued to proceed through the um, 
economic dependency of primary producers of raw material on their purchase in the global in the global north. And so um, political leaders such as Kwame Nkrumah uh, in Ghana, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru in India, um, Sukarno in, in Indonesia began to ask, what does economic sovereignty look like? And so the final communique of Bandung essentially lays out a platform for uh, thinking about uh, negotiating international trade deals that could um, lessen the dependency on the global north, uh, create you know, more reasonable shipping freight rates so that um, uh, countries that were producing and exporting goods were not so dependent on the kind of exorbitant rates of shipping companies that were based in the US and Europe. Um, they called for uh, a lowering of tariffs. They called for different kinds of terms of trade. And over time, in a story that is, you know, probably too long to tell, um, these various innovations kind of took stage both through the UN Conference on Trade and Development, which still exists today, um, but they also took place in nations' own practice of economic sovereignty um, in subscribing to what they understood at the time as import substitute industrialization, which was a policy formulated by Raul Prebich, the Mexican economist in 1949, in which Prebich said the way for the global south to get out of the colonial relations of dependency is for us to be able to raise the price of the primary commodities that we sell and through that process import and substitute um, primary producing goods with an industrial process to allow us to ourselves to, to get to the point of you know, amassing the um, kinds of economic growth that come with the industrialization process. not often told in the history of logistics, but what happens in the process of these negotiations is that containerization becomes uh, invented and, and internationalized as a form. And in my book, I look at a couple of examples of nationalization projects that came out of the Bandung Conference. So in Indonesia, uh, Sukarno in in 1957, upon Indonesian independence, seizes all Dutch assets and nationalizes all of the Dutch companies that were based in Indonesia. And some five to seven years later, during the British confrontation with Malaysia called Konfrontasi, Sukarno then seizes all of the British companies. So merchant houses like McLean Watson, which was key in the kind of merchant trade, um, was seized and nationalized. Many Unilever offices were seized and nationalized. And one of the largest plantation companies, Harrison's and Crossfield, was nationalized. And they owned over, you know, thousands of acres of um, oil palm plantations, which had become kind of one of the, um, the what Europeans thought would be a way to kind of use the land of Southeast Asia um, for produce in the early 20th century. It is only in the aftermath of all of these nationalization projects that in the archives, um, the executives of different companies wrote in kind of panic about what it would mean for their, for their companies to suddenly disappear at the snap of fingers. And one of these companies that was seized, Ocean Steam Shipping, um, 
basically had their ships no longer allowed to dock um, in Indonesia, and they were replaced by the Indonesian shipping company called Jakarta Lloyd. And what you see in the kind of pages of the archives is these shipping and um, executives calling attention to what they called the bestiality of these um, nationalized governments, that decolonial governments would dare to take what the British companies understood was rightfully theirs. And it is only in the aftermath of these mass nationalization projects and in which these shipping companies started to face precipitous loss in their profits that ocean steam shipping begins to um, eke out negotiations with other major British companies who are also experiencing seizures in West Africa and in different parts of the, the colonial uh, post-colonial world. And they began to grow a consortium, which became what was called Overseas Container Limited, the first consortium that built containerization in Britain. And uh, Overseas Container Limited uh, required billions of dollars of loan and loans and investment from the British government. And in the way that they articulated the future of containerization, it was very clear that they understood the mass cost of containerization, the amount of investment it would take as being simply out of reach for newly decolonized nation states. And so the mass financial monopolistic uh, a buy-in that containerization required was a way to sidestep the what they deemed the increasing political risk of the global south and was a way to essentially you know take the possibility of import substitute industrialization and take the possibility of a, a project of economic sovereignty out of the hands of these developing uh, and underdeveloped nations and into a kind of displacement into the containerized um, in the into the so-called container revolution. And so containerization also then shifted um, investments out of the primary producers of raw material and bulk grains, which were shipped in different kinds of ways, into what they saw as the high value piece goods like electronics that were starting to come out of South Korea and out of anti-communist countries uh, in, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, and in Singapore. What I then argue is that if we think about the way that containerization was in effect a response to projects of self-determination, then what we have called the so-called logistics revolution was really not a revolution at all, but a counter-revolution. And it was a counter-revolution in the sense that what it opened the way for was a way to simultaneously block off the access of um, uh, decolonial, militant decolonial countries from the economic system if they wanted to practice a form of nationalization or protectionism that was not beholden to the capitalist system, to block those countries off and to um, incentivize those post-colonial countries that had agreed to merge themselves into the existing system of capitalism. And in this way, they deremped or severed the relationship between the politics of uh, decolonization and the economics of decolonization. Um, and in Singapore, and one of the Singaporean finance ministers in 1972 then says at um, a subsequent gathering of the Bandung Conference, of the Afro-Asian Conference, that whereas political self-determination could be something that the third world could engage in, 
economic self-determination was not a viable project. And what he recommended that the Global South do was instead to fit themselves into the capitalist market. Um, and the reasoning that he gave for this is that, you know, the capitalist system is already um, proceeding in a way that be will, would become very difficult to extricate oneself from. Because of Singapore's successful role in the growth of, um, and, of industrialization, because of the ways in which they were tapping into capitalist systems, um, many countries saw these newly industrialized companies as the example um, for their own development, and they soon quickly abandoned the kind of vision of a third worldist um, um, solidarity. And so this is the story I think that we need to really ground ourselves in and interface with when we're thinking about this containerized revolution, because what it presents us is a vision in which um, every innovation is always in response to ongoing struggles um, for different articulations of what uh, trade and, and you know, a kind of anti-colonial um, economic system could have been and uh, flattened it into the logistical system that we have today.
often the logistics revolution is told as a story of increasing efficiency. And this is often a narrative that is really about how the thirst for consumption drove, you know, people wanting goods to be delivered faster and faster. And I think that actually displaces the the role of consumers and makes them the primary demand for this when actually it was about companies wanting to find cheaper ways to produce their goods and in so doing to kind of create systems that could then use predictive methods to predict consumer demand and bring those goods back to the to the global north. So the the fact that so many of our commodities are moved across the ocean is in fact something that you know many people don't think about in fact yesterday i just had a friend say wow i've never thought about that i've never thought about how many goods that we consume are created across the world and in fact you know a single um seemingly simple thing right like a bag of nuts or a sound recorder even aren't a aren't entirely produced in one place either. Sometimes the semiconductor parts are produced in Singapore or Korea or Thailand. They're then brought into a new factory in China, which has created other components, which are then assembled and then brought over. So logistics didn't just kind of, um, you know, speed up the efficiency of the transition between producers and consumers, but it changed the whole relationship of production to disperse it across the kind of cheapest input site that that you could. So I think it's important to say that long distance trade has long pre-existed capitalism. There were all sorts of forms of market exchange that are not necessarily capitalist, but that um, you know brought people into contact with other traders in previous kind of stages of, of the history of, of the market or the, the history of trade. What changes in capitalism, of course, is that it is only in the capitalist mode of accumulation that the system of profit is premised on um, constantly paying the worker lower than what he is worth in order to maximize the surplus value of the product that you sell. And it is in that kind of thirst for a system in which you can um, produce a good at the least cost that you can that logistics has desired this kind of effort to um, do what the geographer Deborah Cohen calls stretching the factory across the world to find inputs in different kinds of places. And so I think part of why that has become so naturalized and so seemingly accepted is that we simply often uh, see commodities as things that are already formed when we get them. The This is the nature of consumption, that in a sense, the hands that have put these together are not visible to us. And it is why, you know, Karl Marx suggested that what we need to do is go behind the hidden abode of production and into the factory floor to visibilize what these exchange relations actually reveal when we look at the hands that create them. So I think the naturalization of goods as things that are international is in a sense baked into how uh, capitalist commodities come to be in the first place. And and this is not so much like our fault as it is the uh, uh, an invitation for us to really have to dig deeper into what it is that makes the things that we have and, and how it is that, you know, things move around the world. And I think it's, it's why, in part, the maritime space becomes so important to kind of visualize and make real to people 
because in a way, ports now seem extremely far away from most city centers. Um, because of containerization requiring so much space, ports have gradually moved out of the center of cities and into kind of peripheral spaces. So the port of Amsterdam, of course, was once kind of uh, in the canal system, and it has now moved kind of 20 miles outside of the city. Likewise, in Shenzhen, in, the, in London, all of these ports have now kind of moved away from the ways that they used to be such a part of um, the life of, of people's daily, daily forms of living. And I think what has happened as containerization has proceeded is that the abstraction that already happens in the process of production, the way that we don't always see the hands that make our goods, becomes even more twice removed in the sense that these goods that are produced far away become boxed into an abstract container in which you cannot see any of the contents of the goods. They get brought into warehouses, which we also, again, can't visualize. And then they appear at our doorstep as if by magic. And it is, I think, the, the illusion of that magic, the, the, the lack of friction in which you can attain a good that I think really is this, this process of naturalization. Uh, I think things might have been different in uh, even... 10 years ago, when you had to go to a store or four stores just to find the things that you, you wanted. And these days, I think the, the, the naturalization of the speed of consumption has really kind of um, obliterated the, the sense of the tactile quality of what it means to kind of think about where a commodity comes from. One of my first experiences on embarking on the container ship journey was, you know, dragging my suitcase up the stairs and standing in my room and gazing out at the containers in front of me and being completely um, wowed by the technological sublime. And it felt monstrous and it, I knew of the violence that it produced and yet I found myself totally beguiled by it. And I think there is a way that you know, this is in the, the language of the sublime, even in the, tech, uh, the, in the, even in the Victorian era, right? That one could gaze upon the horror of nature and think about the, the conditions of modernity and still be wowed by it. But I think one of the things that is so strange and beguiling about containerization and logistics is that somehow it is about the replicability of these units that become aesthetically... Uh, reproducible into people's logics. So on the one hand, um, you know, when I get invited to things like anti-capitalist workshops of some kind that are critical of capitalism, even if they have nothing to do with logistics and they're discussing things like finance, I often see that the image that they uh, put on their brochures are containers. And so somehow the container has become a, a kind of symbol of capitalism in general. And I think part of the attraction to it is that the sense of optimization that comes in these containerized forms that are sort of stackable and therefore kind of 
um, be made to to seem to just reproduce themselves without effort becomes, I think, a, a an aesthetic category that replicates how people feel in the alienation of capitalism. Uh, we often feel like bodies that have no interior. We are completely subject to capitalism's wants and needs. Um, everybody has to sell their labor on the market. Nobody can survive without a job. At least certainly in the US, there isn't even a social welfare system to make sure that people are taken care of. And so I think that profound sense of of alienation becomes somehow aesthetically captured in this system that seems to reproduce itself without effort. And of course, what it um, doesn't reveal, right, is because time and, and, and history are not visible in space, what it reproduces is like capitalism's view from above, its bird's eye view, without giving us a sense of the things that existed before. But if you dig into the history of where these ports were before, the port of Long Beach, for example, was built on an island that used to uh, boast a beach that used to be black owned and an island that used to be a site for Japanese uh, vacation goers that was then seized during Japanese internment. So all of these deep histories, right, the ways that our ecologies and our um, spatialities and sense of urban life become kind of just taken away and, and, and moved into uh, blocks of the same, I think really feel like what, what the container expresses. And I have this experience often of coming to every European city and finding the same shops and feeling like I never left London to go to Berlin or I never left Berlin to go to Amsterdam because it, it feels like um, we, we have a globalized world that has no distinction or character anymore. And, and so the, you know, the, the philosopher Marc Auger calls this the non-place, right? The non-place where um, everything feels like a space of transit. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting also to think about how the container then becomes uh, moved into different other kinds of forms of life. So now the frequency of the container box uh, shopping mall or the way that the container becomes now a way to reproduce refugee housing or to now become even fetishized as new gentrified condo-like units. It's very strange actually that this one box both kind of becomes a, a solution for solving these deeply racialized problems of global war and then also become fetishized um, for bourgeois you know, uh, uh, consumption. There's a way that the kind of fetishization of fast circulation that I talked about earlier, in which everything about capitalism is envisioned as a quick way to make profit, um, requires a deep and slow violence that is often not visibilized as such. And because of the way that commodities and con consumption are so naturalized, the cheap fashion we buy, the nuts we consume, the oil we cook with are all, you know, they all contain in many ways 
this, the forms of slow violence that we do not always grasp when we are um, using these products. And so I think one of the ways that I've been trying to think about the logistics counter-revolution is to show how this slow violence is required at multiple scales. At the ecological scale, it requires, as I had mentioned before, a mass reshaping of coastlines, of reefs, of maritime ecologies, um, of massive geoengineering projects that kind of shift the ways in which we both relate to urban planning and ur our, our city environments, but also in ways that are unseen in the in the um, blowing up of islands that then could get forgotten. In one of the cases that I study in the reclamation of land in Singapore, in which so many millions of tons of sand are dredged from Myanmar and from Indonesia and from Malaysia over the last three decades, over the last five decades, that um, and then it, that get then deposited and made into land uh, in Singapore, that the ways in which dispossession itself happens is so naturalized and so invisible. And so I think slow violence is a is a category that Rob Nixon, um, the as an environmental um, literary theorist, came up with in order to explain what climate change is. That climate change is something that um, happens almost without us noticing, but is deeply structural. And I try to think about the ways in which logistics is similarly a kind of slow violence. So it's a slow violence ecologically. It is a slow violence in terms of the um, what Stefano Harney and Fred Moten call the sociopathic demand for access in the ways in which it demands an access to um, all sorts of locations, uh, whether that be cheap labor and cheap land in the Inland Empire of California, or whether that be cheap labor and cheap land in the Shenzhen Pearl River Delta, or whether that be cheap land um, in lithium and rare earth mining in Chile or in West Africa, so on and so forth. And so it's a geographical demand that reproduces slow violence through dispossession. And then I think third, it is also a slow violence um, to the laboring bodies that are required to make the supply chain what it is. Um, that slow violence is visible um, both in the homesickness of the sailors who bear the kind of consequences of constant circulation in their own bodies, in the way they experience jet lag, in the exhaustion of working on ships. Uh, it is visible, of course, in the ways in which um, factories are now sort of becoming logistical entities in themselves and the just-in-time um, process of labor production also itself becomes a constant demand for workers to um, work as much as possible. In Foxconn factories, for example, sleeping shifts are categorized just so that migrant laborers almost never spend enough time in a dorm together at the end of a shift, but the shifts are staggered so that they're sleeping on and off at different points. Uh, their eating facilities are right next door so that they can eat as quickly as they can and go back to work. And so there's a constant demand, I think, for not just exploitation and not even just super exploitation in the, in the kind of um, constant, you know, underpaying of the value of labor in the global south, but, but a kind of incessant exploitation that never ends, right? And a just-in-time exploitation that is constantly about demanding 
uh, the body to become a kind of site of, of capitalist efficiency, um, absolutely. So that's how I guess I would think about why why it's important to kind of think about the 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 dark side, uh, the shadowy other to fast circulation. That the same time, the same kinds of monstrous and magical processes that have allowed the packages to appear at our door within a single day of clicking a button require all of this slow violence ecologically, uh, in terms of dispossession, and then in terms of labor. So I'm working on a second book um, called Battling the Behemoth, The Rise of America's Working Class. And this was an effort to, I think, bring the question of these massive supply chains home to where I live and work in the US. Um, part of, I think, what gets really difficult to grasp about, about logistics is it, it is such a grand system and it is so monstrous that one can feel quite helpless. And often I have seen a lot of colleagues who work on similar issues to end their presentations or their books or their research with a kind of generalized call, right? That what logistics has produced is simultaneously this massive system, but it also has created transnational supply chains in which workers are connected more than ever before. I think that is absolutely true, but the question of what one does from that point, this is really unclear. And I think a question that is really hard to answer and really hard to figure out. So my humble contribution to it has to just been to say, at the same time that we map historically and through global space these expansions, we also have to think about where it is that we live and work and are situated most of the time and what it is that we can do as um, people embedded in these supply chains in a way that isn't just about gesturally um, talking about them in the hope that somehow saying the right thing will then produce the right politics. And so for me, the answer has really been, what does it look like to organize the supply chain working class where I can organize them in the US? Um, and that's led me, I think, less to longshoremen because it's very hard to kind of organize dock workers and sailors and more towards um, Amazon workers who are, I think, the largest sector of logistics workers and growing as a kind of solution to the crisis of a lack of jobs in the US over the last um, 10 to 20 years. And so my colleague Spencer Cox and I 
are writing a book on Amazon um, that tries to do two things. One is it tries to map the rise of Amazon and its success in order to do a kind of strategic corporate analysis of how it is that companies such as Amazon have become so successful. And there, what we're trying to do is sort of understand where the levers of power are. How is it that Amazon has, you know, found its way to so successfully consolidate um, its its power? Um, how is how, how Amazon's kind of expansion strategy has been long premised on buying up as much space as possible so as to crowd out other competitors in the logistics space? Um, in fact, you know, Amazon is not only constantly buying warehouses, but uh, has recently bought a privatized. Um, port um, off of the coast of uh, Los Angeles in order to compete with and employ labor that is not unionized at the port of LA. They've started to experiment with buying ships and they're, um, you know, slowly moving into the category of displacing trucking companies like UPS. Um, they've ordered most recently 100,000 electric trucks from Rivian. So all of these strategies, I think for us, are, are, are start, sort of a puzzle because not every company can grow at this speed and this quickly. And what we found is that Amazon's web services, so the part of it that supplies cloud storage and contracts often with military companies and um, with departments of defense, uh, actually is by far the most profitable wing of Amazon. And all of the profits that are generated in the web services realm become a way to cross-subsidize the Amazon logistics operation in that the profits that are made in web services then are put into buying up more warehouse space. And for, for Amazon, this is about mobilizing what is called patient capital, uh, investors who are willing to wait a long time for a strategy to bear out in order to incentivize what they see as a strategy to capture the entire world into Amazon's um, uh, uh, tentacles. In the process, one of the things we try to think about is the way that this um, strategy has, I think, um, relied on long histories of deindustrialization in the US, such that um, unemployed and surplus populations, people without work um, who used to live in city centers, are now being pushed out of those city centers by gentrifying uh, middle to uh, upper class workers, tech workers often, and pushed out into the suburbs and exurbs, uh, which is where actually the middle class used to live. And these are the places where Amazon is building warehouses because that's where the cheaper land is. Suburbs are also really hungry for tax dollars and rev tax revenue. So they often use um, opportunity zones, uh, tax incentives and like tax relief credits to attract Amazon to build their warehouse there because they know that it will create jobs. And what we found is that actually, um, if you look at the net loss of jobs in retail brick and mortar stores that have closed versus the number of jobs that Amazon has created, it's actually a pretty much a wash. In other words, Amazon's not really creating any jobs at all because so many retail stores are closing because of it. And so you see these mass kind of, you know, landscapes of um, empty storefronts uh, while all of the working class energy has moved to these suburbs. And this is why um, Spencer Cox and I are trying to argue that the rise of America's new working class is really located in these areas outside of the city centers, which are, again are less visible, but where many of the racialized immigrant, refugee, um, people of color who are Amazon working class workers are based. 
Um, and we've been working with an independent union called Amazonians United for the past five years. Spencer, in fact, was one of the co-founders um, in order to try to build a kind of class consciousness, a working class consciousness um, within these warehouse workers. And we assist in the research and the support for um, Amazon workers who are themselves organizing their fellow workers to kind of take up, um, take up organizing against the, the warehouses that they're located in. I think the big difference in the Amazon project from my intellectual, my larger monograph project is that I really see myself as a researcher and I try to see myself as doing research for organizing and organizing as research rather than that it's a kind of transactional relationship in which I'm trying to get an interview or write a book out of these experiences. It's really about asking workers what they need from researchers and how to use the research process potentially as a tool to map the warehouse to help workers understand the conditions of their work um, to give them the kinds of resources that they can then take and use i think it becomes very tricky when intellectuals presume that what they can do is set the terms and the strategies for workers themselves and so Amazonians United is really a union that is primarily run by workers and for fellow workers. Most of the um, people that we work with are um, not immigrant workers of color themselves, but actually a lot of um, young American, either working class workers or middle class uh, college graduates who you know became politicized as socialists and then wanted to work in the labor movement and have chosen to, in a sense, um, uh, be downwardly mobile and to take a lower wage in order to commit themselves to the struggle. And so they, they are the ones who are then engaged in earning the trust of and building work with immigrant workers of color. We do have some immigrant workers that we directly also talk to, but um, this is a kind of core network that is um, really seeing themselves as workers generating worker struggle and organizing from within. In the research part of it, what we try to do is be accountable to what workers need. And so, for example, when Amazon workers have asked us, what is the, who do we deliver to? Because it's actually very hard to find out which zip codes you, you kind of deliver to. Um, we've tried to gain access to that information and map it um, by kind of predicting and looking at real estate listings and um, new announcements about Amazon facilities in ways that sometimes uh, often workers don't have the time to do themselves. We've created cart cartographic maps in order to visualize Amazon's expansion strategy. And we've also um, invited workers to do what are called workers inquiries, which are long interviews, about 100 questions that are actually quite boring questions, such as, you know, are you paid overtime? How much are you paid overtime? What does your facility look like? Can you map the facility for us? And what it's meant to produce um, is not so much a kind of like interview that's for the researcher, but it's meant to actually elicit for the worker a recognition of the conditions of their work. And it's meant to politicize that work to get them to reflect on, you know, a question like, do you work overtime and how much are you paid? Often gets them to think, 
oh, you're right, I'm not paid enough overtime. It's ridiculous that I'm expected to pay overtime, for example. And so it politicizes the process of the interview. And we've tried to do this as a way to invite Amazon workers increasingly to kind of identify their own conditions and possibilities for them to then organize their, their own workers. So in, in this kind of way, what we see ourselves as doing is solidarity organizing and research um, that we then sort of hope that workers will then take into, into the work that they do. So one of the unique things about Amazonians United is that as an independent union, they do not see a legal route to recognition of a formal union as, this, as the way to organize. In the US, I'm not sure what it is like in Europe, um, there are no national sector unions. So CGT in France, for example, where you can mount a national strike is not possible in the US. Labor law that was passed um, in, I believe, the 1930s uh, ruled so that you would have to unionize only facility by facility. And so what that means is you can't have, you know, an Amazon union as a whole. And that becomes a big challenge when you have such a large company with so many warehouses that it, it is inconceivable that you would be able to organize every single warehouse. And Amazon is so large that what it's able to do is reroute right around unionized warehouses as it's already doing with the one JFK 8, which was successfully unionized in Staten Island. And so what Amazonian United's workers really are committed to as, as a political entity is that they think of formal legal recognitions of unions, running union campaigns, in other words, in order to get the National Labor Relations Board to officially certify your union, actually for them take up a lot of the, sap up a lot of the energy of what could otherwise be spent on actually building real working class power, getting, you know, people and workers to understand themselves as workers, to build community amongst each other, to dare to take up, you know, the militancy of kind of marching against the boss and to recognize that one's work power is in the work. Their critique really comes out of, I think, a long-standing critique of the labor movement in the U.S. where many people have noted that kind of the, the, the structure of labor law that has become so repressive has made it actually, and often the way that trade unions themselves become structured is that it becomes a very bureaucratic process. You unionize, a labor rep comes in, you tell your complaints to the labor rep, and it becomes, the union becomes understood kind of almost like an electoral relationship, right? Where you're, it's almost like a customer service relationship. And AU really thinks that this is the death knell of working class consciousness. And so when they say what they're building is working class consciousness, what they're trying to build is, um, a union that is a union because it is work it is constituted out of workers taking power as workers for them if you are workers acting together against the boss you're a union you don't need the state to tell you that you are you don't need the permission to to do that and so there's there's a militancy involved in that that i think is quite remarkable because there are risks that are involved in this of course um you know the the militancy of that means that uh, you can be fired at any time. You are not protected by labor law in the same way. But it has also, I think, given them an extraordinary kind of um, wider capacity to situate their struggles in solidarity with others. So in the way that I think sometimes formal labor unions can only strike in the U.S. Um, at the conclusion of a contract, 
And often these strikes are very limited in terms of what you can ask for and become embroiled into like, uh, you know, little side fights about kind of like a raised wage or important things like healthcare. Um, Amazonians United as a union has actually been able to very capaciously bridge multiple struggles in a kind of intersectional analysis. So when um, Amazon shifted to this mega cycle that changed the window of shifts um, from you know 10 p.m. to 8 a.m. to 2 a.m. to 12 p.m., uh, they recognized that this was the worst affected people were mothers. And their campaign around Stop the Mega Cycle was really pitched on the fact that mothers would not be able to deliver their children to school or to pick up another job or um, to do the social reproductive work of the households. Um, similarly, when uh, one of the workers worked at a facility across just across the border from Mexico, he recognized that many of the workers were commuting from Tijuana for over three hours a day. And for him, it was an essential question of border justice to get Amazon to pick up and um, you know, uh, create a transit pass to kind of um, allow those workers to come, come into the US more quickly. So these kinds of things where the, the attention is often paid to the, the, the most marginalized in these, in these warehouses, where the effort is to actually kind of grow an intersectional, anti-racist vision of um, work at Amazon. Uh, I think those are things that allow them some more flexibility to maneuver and imagine um, taking power as workers in a way that I think, uh, you know, uh, formal unions really don't. And that is, I think, an extraordinarily creative power that reminds us that um, there are other ways to um, demand and engage in working class struggle beyond the kind of ways that the state has, has defined those limits for us. One of the questions that arises when you deal with a topic that is so large and so monstrous as the global expansion of the logistics industry is, well, what the heck do we do about it? We are so tied into supply chains. We are so deeply embedded in these kinds of exploitative and extractive economies that imagining a solution is often really hard. And I think when we grapple with the violence of capitalism, often the answer that many people give is you can make individual consumption choices that are different. You can buy fewer plastic water bottles. You can shop with reproducible shopping bags. You can choose not to subscribe to an Amazon membership. And I get that. And I think all of these 
choices matter. It's not to say that they don't. I think it's important that we are making ethical choices that align ourselves with the world we want to see in an everyday sense. But I also think that consumption side um, kinds of modes of individual choice are not really a site of collective political struggle. And so for me, collective political struggle is about asking where can you build the working class to take more power so that we eventually have enough people to understand themselves as workers within a supply chain. And the supply chain is everywhere, right? I'm a university professor, but uh, my university chain trains people to become future supply chain managers. We subscribe to Amazon. Uh, you know, we have a massive million dollar contract with Amazon at the University of California. So what would it look like for me to politically mobilize my faculty to start a campaign to sever Amazon's contract with the UC system? That, for example, would be a massive blow to, to Amazon. So that's one, one way I try to think about this question that um, strategically mapping where the levers of power are should allow us to visualize where we can have the most impact if we collectively choose to build a political project rather than make that project of uh, one of, of choice. I think the second is that taking the history of logistical counter-revolution seriously and taking seriously its impact on the global south requires us thinking about like what a question of global justice and what a question of transnational labor solidarity looks like. And for me, it's been helpful to return to um, an older concept of delinking that Samir Amin wrote about. Um, I think it was in 1993. And the concept was one of trying to think about what it would mean to repossess and, 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 and you know, delink the global south and, and, and dependent nations from the system of capitalism to recreate other possibilities. I no longer think that this is a feasible solution given how tightly tied into capitalism you are today. So there is not really an escape and that can feel really helpless. But I think the imagination at least of what delinking can do as this kind of broad political horizon can, can help us try to understand, right? Like what would it look like to, um, to imagine supply chains that look different? What could we do, for example, if we changed uh, like a, a massive contract into one that sort of like invests in a different kind of mode of redistribution. Or even things like how can your choices to delink uh, even kind of ideologically from the global capitalist system and to participate in mutual aid projects to, you know, uh, be part of collectives that try to provision goods to people when they need it, um, and to produce these kinds of economies of care, what could that look like? Um, and I think sometimes I feel like all of it is unsatisfying because nothing, none, none of it seems like it moves us closer to a kind of revolutionary mass seizure of, of capitalism. But I think that it's important to practice constantly what it looks like to, to kind of engage in these, in these alternatives together. And, and in the practicing of that, to envision what solidarity can look like. I think on the question of degrowth, this, I think, becomes essential because supply chain capitalism is a system premised on and deeply built on the assumption that trade is going to continue to grow. Uh, when megaships are built, they are built on the projection that trade growth will proceed at 5 to 7% a year. And it is often an optimistic projection, right? It's, it's premised on the idea that uh, 
Factories are going to produce more, people are going to consume more, whether it's fueled by credit or not, whether it's fueled by venture capitalism or not, um, that is the assumption. And I think if we if we don't question the ideology of growth and the incessant push towards growth, um, we are going to have, a, we already are, you know, living with the planetary um, consequences of climate change in a really serious way. Degrowth theorists actually are not um, naive about this. They say that what they want is for developing and underdeveloped nations to grow up. So um, post-colonial nations should reverse the terms of trade by, um, you know, uh, enacting different kinds of protectionist strategies to nurture their own industries. And so they say underdeveloped nations should grow up. But in the industrial, advanced industrialized countries in the global north, we should grow down. So we should lessen the kind of aims of economic trade growth and, and kind of um, do this in ways that actually open up other ways of being. So I think often the term is 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 thought of as a, as a sacrifice, but really it is about um, creating other spaces for other kinds of economies, right? So one of the arguments of degrowth is we could have a three-day work week instead of a five-day work week. Or we could build public transportation and stop driving cars. And all of this is actually a beautiful vision of what could be, right? To be able to be uh, in public transport that's publicly funded instead of uh, being in a car for hours at a time. To be able to return to work, to return home from work and have a four-day work, four or even five-day work week to be able to spend time with people you love and nurture hobbies and develop new passions. These, I think, are what the imagination of degrowth would be. It's not suffering because we're consuming less, but flourishing more because we have other ways to imagine uh, life beyond what it is that we buy um, that makes us who we are. <laughs>